faith would wreck my testimony. Like, wait, what? Because I come from, I'm, I'm an ancestor of someone who was enslaved, right? And so if I'm, if I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a descendant. If I'm a descendant of that, and this is, you were, that could have been my great, great grandfather. That could, you would think it would wreck my testimony, but it didn't, it didn't, it strengthened it. And I was like, why does everything I believe, why is it getting stronger? Why is it rooting me in all that I believe? And I think it's just, there is something about truth that brings you closer to faith. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Mally Bonner, famous musical entrepreneur, songwriter, <laughs> vocal coach, and filmmaker. Part one, uh, please go back and, and hear about his work with Stevie Wonder and Boys to Men and Katy Perry and Ariana Grande and, and all these uh, huge names in the music industry. What I'm really looking forward to focus on this episode, though, is about your film project. And, uh, and the awards it's already winning at film festivals and, and all this kind of stuff. Can you tell people Green Flake? Yes. So Green Flake um, was a 19-year-old enslaved young man who was sent to trek across country from uh, over, over 1,500 miles um, across country into Utah territory. And so it follows the lives of free and enslaved pioneers. Very cool. Can you just talk about kind of the origin story and, and how you yeah. decided this is what you were going to do? Yeah. So I I just, you know, I, I was learning about some of the early church. You've heard of the Mormon church. So the early yep. Mormon church. And and then I heard slave. I'm like, slave? What? And then I learned more about Green Flake, who was enslaved to another member of the church and other men and women who were enslaved to members of the church. This is in the early or early to mid 1800s. And I was fascinated by it. I, I wanted to know more because I'd never heard. I've never heard this. And so I quickly began researching, meeting with historians, reading turned to writing so quickly. Like within, it was about three to four, between three and four weeks, I had 10 songs written. And the songs I'd written, I wasn't writing them for something. I was just, it was just a part of me dealing with the stories I was hearing. I was overwhelmed by the stories. So I would just write a song. And then I also had 200 pages of something. So in that month, I had 200 pages of something and 10 songs. And I was like, I think this is a movie. And prior to that, I've never thought of, I want to be at one day, I'll be that director. Or one day I'm going to make this film. I never even thought about that. I like going to the movies like any other regular human being until that moment. And that's when I knew that that's what it was. And so I started running full speed ahead. Yeah. Well, so now when, what year or how long ago was that? That you're like, yeah, I thinking, that, I think it's the movie. Yeah, I learned that in 2018. This is the summer of 2018. And so I was like, oh, wow. But, you know, when I met with some folks, they said, well, people who make movies and, and know how it's supposed to go, they would tell me, well, it takes about two, three years of development. And then after two, three years of development, then you put the team together, you shoot the film maybe a year later. And then after that, then you can shop the thing. And then after like a five-year plan, I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, I, I don't have five years before I even make the movie. And they're like, well, that's just the way it goes. And, you know, in this situation, lucky for me, I, I didn't have, I, I'm like, I don't have five years. I, I, I got to get back to work. So let me just hurry up and do this. And I didn't know what those steps were, but because I didn't know those steps, 
and knew the finish line, there was a lot of things that I was able to navigate through a lot quicker. And I mean, not to take away from people's education or experience, but a lot of times not knowing what you're doing, but knowing your goal can help you get there a lot faster. I completely agree. When I was running an investment fund that I had started in Calgary in 2009, we're raising what we thought were quite, you know, we're raising millions of dollars in 2009, not knowing that the professionals in our space had all turned off their fundraising because everybody knows you can't raise money in the middle of the financial crisis. Wow. <laughs> and we were just too inexperienced to know we shouldn't do it. And so we did it, you know, and it was a huge uplift for us because, you know, later that year, we are, we are one of the very few funds anywhere in town writing $5 million checks. And we got into all sorts of meetings and deals that we had no, like we didn't have the track record that we, to, to have been allowed in there, but there was like, we were one of the only games in town because we didn't know we shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing it. So you've got some great musical talent here, Alex Boyer, Boyer and to talk about who, talk about your talent. Yeah. So in the film, so I wanted to use people that were influential in the faith. Cause so so Green Flake was also a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so what I wanted to happen was to involve people that shared that same faith and could influence those within the faith to learn more about the story. And so uh, I just knew that it was a, it was a really tight niche uh, group of people. And, and so I reached out to Alex Boyer. I reached out to members of my family who are also members of the church. And, and a lot of different people who are all in Utah and told them the story and sent them the script. And they're like, yes, yes, we're on board. And um, like, like I said, I mean, we, from the time of me finishing writing the script, which was about September, we were shooting in December. So this is just two months later. And so that was during that time, that was the time I had to get everybody on board and make sure they're ready to shoot. You know, it's interesting. So I grew up in the church. I'm a member of the church and like, I don't know, like sixth generation on one side and eighth generation on the other side. So they're like, you know, like my, like the first Larson came over in the 1850s and, you know, had kids die coming over. I mean, like, you know, has one of the crazy pioneer stories, right? Wow. And I'm glad this, you brought up this issue of, of race and slavery and the church, because I feel like it's one that hasn't, it's hasn't been talked about enough. And it's actually really a, vulner, a vulnerability for the organization to not talk about whether it's mistakes that were made or, or understanding things were different. And we put things through our current lens, you know, my, my brother, who's been my business partner for the last 16, 17 years, we run the charity together, Seth, his wife, my sister-in-law, they're all from St. Vincent and they're, they're not just black. She's dark black. Okay. So, so my wife grew up like in really low income areas in, in LA. I remember when my mom sent the wedding, like the wedding invite and we hadn't met them because we hadn't been back to Canada. She's like, Keisha, that's a black girl name. My mom's like, well, she is black. (laughs) But my brother, who's as pasty as me, his kids are like very brown, right? So at at the grocery store, I'm always like, hey, Nick, how are you? Hey, whose kids are these? You know? Oh, that's messed up. That is not funny. And and at our house, we have like, we we have the, we have the two sets of Larson's because we're always together, you know, vacations, owning companies together, running stuff. It's the pasty Larson's. That's my kids and the brown Larson's. So you'll hear like yellow, yelling through the house, pasty Larson's go get in the car, you know? Oh, oh my God. But it's a thing of like my nieces and nephews who I love, like they're my own kids, right? 
it can be confusing. There can, there's stuff in church history that didn't get talked about. And, and so I was really fascinated to hear that you've brought up like a really sensitive issue of like, you know, you, you think about like Mormons were actually, it was, it was legal to murder, it was me, sorry, it was legal to kill Mormons in Missouri because primarily because they were against slavery. And yet there's members of the church 150 years ago that had slaves. Like that's a, that's confusing, man. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And so I'm so interested that as a black man, you've taken this on and that for you, I've just read little statements here and there that you've kind of feel like in some ways it's, it's enhanced how you feel about everything. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, so you would think that me learning this history about my faith would wreck my testimony. Like, wait, what? Because I come from, I'm, I'm an ancestor of someone who was enslaved. Right. And so if I'm, if I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a descendant. If I'm a descendant of that, and this is, you were, that could have been my great, great grandfather. That could, you would think it would wreck my testimony, but it didn't, it didn't, it strengthened it. And I was like, why does everything I believe, why is it getting stronger? Why is it rooting me in all that I believe? And I think it's just, there is something about truth that brings you closer to faith, to light and learning more truth about the things that I believed strengthened my testimony. And I realized that, man, a lot of people, especially in the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, there's so many things that are coming up or come up that it's like in these this Google area, like, I don't like that. Like, wait, what? Why wasn't I taught that? What? And I just, I hate to imagine that there's gen, a whole new generation that's learning things that they've never been taught and feeling that they're betrayed. And I don't want that. I want this history, Black history, to be a part of church history. And I want church history to be a part of American history. Because honestly, it has transcended the religion. Like when I send it to film festivals, I didn't send it to any Mormon or church or Utah film festivals. I send it to the world. Which I've got to say, you know, Church is not that popular in the world these days. Religion is not that cool in general these days, right? And here you are in the heart of LA working with, you know, the biggest names of music, you know, so you you really pick the cool subject to make a movie about. Okay, P.S., I think we have to cover one thing first. And I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm really looking forward to being able to see it. But I understand that he was able to get his freedom in the 1850s. Is that right? Yes, he was. So here's the crazy thing. So back to your earlier point, like, man, it went from, you know, the Mormons, they were like, they, they were getting tortured, like, man, run out of everywhere they were going in a large part because of how good they were treating Blacks. And then you come into Utah and everything switches. So between 1847 and 1852, that's when the tables turned. Like Brigham Young, who was the leader of the church in 1847 at Winter Quarters, he was there, there was a Black man at Winter Quarters who was like, man, they're not treating me right. And because of my color of my skin, this is not fair. And Brigham Young said, one of the best priesthood holders we have is a Black man. So this is the leader of the church at the time. Five years later, Brigham Young changes that completely and was one of the leaders of turning Utah into a slave territory. And so how comp- this is the complicated part is even though that was a big part, a big role that the leader of that of the church at the time did, there was a relationship between him and Green Flake. Green Flake who drove the first wagon because when Brigham Young became ill, he got sick at winter quarters, he sent the vanguard group, the advanced group to go on into the valley. And Green Flake drove that first wagon. This oh, really? Yeah, this 19-year-old enslaved young man. And so 
Right before Utah became a slave territory, the family who owned Green Flake wrote a letter to Brigham Young asking them to either sell Green or to send them to him and to them because they're going to go to California. We need a house built. And Brigham Young basically lied and said, and this is a good lie. This is a great lie. Don't know where he is. I think I'll let you know how things are going, but consider it done. Like, you know, don't reach out about it again. And then from then on, Green was free. Green was free. Green's wife was free. Green's, yeah. How confusing is that? It's, right? so, it's so confusing. You and know? It, it's such a tough issue, especially you think about how extra racially charged the country is right now. Yes. And so I'm really glad to have people like you who taking the bull by the horns, taking the hard issues and trying to pull more towards unity instead of blame and finger pointing and stuff. Like I think about my hero in life, my absolute hero in life, my mom's dad, my grandpa, Jim Bridge. If I ever grow up, I hope to be like him. You know, every one of his 65 grandkids thought they were his special grandkid. They were obviously delusional. It was me, you know, you know, a self-made millionaire in this little farm town of 3000 people. He was in the rotary and he like very engaged citizen of town and helping people. And I was like, so excited to move there as a 10 year old and to be known as Jim Bridges' grandson, which by the way, I was constantly known as that. Like people didn't know my name, like, oh, you're one of Jim Bridges' grandsons. I was like, not offended at all. They didn't actually know my name. And yet when my brother and Keisha were getting married, that was a tough thing for him because, you know, he'd been kind of, he'd grown up in this age where interracial marriage weren't the thing. And, and like, that's tough for me of like the man I want to be like in basically almost every way, he was really worried for my brother and was not in favor of this. And he wasn't like fighting against it. He, he, you know, he wasn't a jerk or something, but like, that's a tough thing for me to be like, wow, really? This is like one of the most humanizing individuals of my life that just really cared about everybody. And then there's this thing that I, I don't quite get, you know? And so for me, like having people be able to bring up parts of our past that certainly through today's lens, none of us are too excited about, but trying to figure out how to unify and how to like, how we're going to live forward together and things like this is quite frankly, something I think is, is very brave of you to do. I, I appreciate it, man. And I, uh, I, and I, I feel for you because honestly, it's like, unfortunately, when we look at our, our heroes, or the people we look up to, we just want them to be perfect. And that's just not the case. You know, our heroes are all the things they're beautiful. They're giving, they're mean, they're, they're forgiving. They're all of the things. And I just think that we have to be honest when we talk about history, especially to tell it all, you know, and I, I, I don't feel like I'm tearing down the church or tearing down Brigham Young to tell truths. I think Brigham Young's up in heaven being like, yes, please tell them what happened because I'm not a racist like anymore. I've got friends, I got black friends up here. You know, I'm like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't need, I don't think he's up there waiting for us to defend racism. You know, I would imagine that those who have passed on are up in heaven being like, what was I thinking? And we can look at this and say, yeah, that was wrong. That's not okay. We, you think about the other places this shows up in life, right? Like, I mean, it was... When, when we were kids, I don't know. I don't know if you're as old as me. I was, I'm a child of the 80s, okay? When I was a kid, it was perfectly fine to hate Russians and to say, you know, like, if you said mean things or unkind things about Russians, like, nobody cared. Do you know what I mean? Like, they, were, they weren't real. They were like fake G.I. Joe characters or something, I think, right? Totally. And I remember when I met to LA and I met people who had escaped the Soviet Union and were making a life for themselves and stuff. And, you know, here it's years later and they're still adjusting. You know what I mean? And you go like, 
wow, those are, those are real people. And like, even the ones who were doing things they probably shouldn't have done, they're probably just rationalizing like you and I, and I'm not saying that it's okay. The, the horrific things that were done under the USSR. And, and unfortunately some things are still being done in Russia. Right. But you think about like how easy it is to be unkind about people. We don't know. We don't know their circumstance. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how they got into what they got into. Right. Instead of putting on a lens of compassion, of like hold myself to a high standard and give compassion to others. That's not like, I think my natural default mode is like cut myself some slack and hold everybody else to the highest standard. I totally hear you. And you know, it's <laughs> race is such a touchy subject. It's so difficult so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit deep and I'm gonna try to bring us out. I'm trying okay. to crawl, okay. get, get us out of the game. Sure. But I I think in order to treat another race or a group of people less less than for slavery to happen, you have to dehumanize them in order to be okay with that treatment. You have to be because back then you know African Americans were lazy. They didn't they didn't feel pain. They all these things that are just uh, didn't feel pain. They they were cunning like all of these negative attributes. And if you believe that about a group of people, then you can validate the behavior or the, the way they're being treated in the world because they're not the same as me. I'm not those things. And so we really have to see each other as brothers and sisters and treat them the way we want to be treated. Because as soon as we look at another group, no matter what that group is, Black people, Asian people, gay people, whatever group it is, and you have these negative stereotypes, that allows you to be okay with the behavior that they're receiving, the negative things. Yeah. And it's interesting because it doesn't mean we have to agree with all of their choices. You know, there's a lot of Russian choices that I would probably never agree with in life, right? It's so complicated. And I feel like it's worse when we only hang out with people who have our same opinion. And it's worse when we're not allowed to have a public conversation because we're worried about getting canceled. Right. And, and so I think, you know, you bringing this up and making it a conversation and this is a business show. Like we've, I'm sure we've lost a whole bunch of listeners by talking about too much church, (laughs) church, talking about church and racism on essentially a business show. Probably not like the best move for my ratings. Okay. But I feel like it's an important conversation. I feel like people like you who have not indulged in exaggerated victimhood, like you don't, you don't, you're not, you're not whitewashing the past. You're not pretending the bad stuff didn't happen. And you're not in, you're not making bad things. You're not exaggerating. You're not taking bad things and then adding a little bit of exaggeration on top, which unfortunately causes problems too, right? Yeah. Well, okay. I think we've probably talked enough about church and racism. Let's talk about the movie business. I mean, it's entrepreneurship. It's learning a new skill set. It's not easy, right? We have other friends and people have been on this show who've made movies. What's one of the biggest lessons you learned taking on a new skill set, new adventure, and essentially a new business? Yeah. I mean... I, I do know what I don't know, and I don't know a whole lot. So that, that is so helpful to know the things that I don't know. So then you can pull in the right people who do know. And I, I, I just knew that what I can do is drive things forward. And even though I don't know what these pieces are, I know that this person does and that person does. And so I think you just have to be honest about what you do and don't know and bring in the people that you trust and are competent in those spaces. So I'll ask you a hard question there. Yes. Okay. Is how do you think through these times when you thought you could trust someone or you thought you could trust their skill set and you're well into the project and then you're finding out, oh man, like whether they're dropping the ball or I overestimated what they could do, but you're like, you're already well into it. And, and it's time for the hard conversation of like, you know, Hey man, this isn't cutting it, you know, or Hey man, I love you, but we got to make a change, you know, tell me, tell me what it's like 
for, for you, what, what do you tell yourself? How do you get in the right headspace before having to have those hard conversations we all have to have sometimes? Yeah. So, okay. So because I pour so much time and effort into whatever I'm working on, that's never been difficult for me because I think if, if I didn't really take the film thing, it was like, oh, that'd be cool. And oh, okay. This movie's moving along. Cool. Now pieces of the puzzle aren't working. I don't know that I would have the confidence to pull those pieces out, but because I put so much into this project and it means so much and so many people are invested into it, there's no way that I'm going to let these two people ruin it for this whole room of people that sacrifice so much. So to me, that's, it's never been difficult to do those things. It happened on the film. We're in day two of the film and one of the people working, I realized, oh, they don't know what they're doing. And so I just talked to my producer and said, hey, I don't, I, I, whatever they're doing is not working. I don't have time to teach them. I've already talked to them a couple of times. So can you get them out? I'm like, okay, yeah. The next day they were there. And I was like, why aren't they out? Yeah, I'm working on it. I said, don't even worry about it. Went up to the person, thank you so much for some, some, something. I'll make sure I pay you for the whole week, but uh, just stop there. Don't, don't do any more work there. I made a phone call and, and I had to send people. It, it made the shooting for the next two days difficult because I had to, had to pull from other resources that knew what I needed. But at the end of the day, it looked the way it needed to look. Everybody had the pieces that needed to be in play rather than me having to make excuses when people see the film. Well, yeah, because this, yeah, I don't want... I have no excuses because I did everything I was supposed to do. And so to those who are in those, those positions, if you're not comfortable or how do I tell someone, then work harder. I think you're just not putting enough time into what you're working on. Then there's It's almost like you get the street cred, right? When you've poured your heart and soul and then you go, you kind of earn that ability to say, hey, listen, you know, I can't cheat everyone else. I can't cheat everyone else by having the weekly, you know? And I mean, obviously we can't go objectifying them and be unkind when we do it, but we're kind of being unkind to everyone else to avoid the conflict, aren't we? Exactly. I hate that. I hate conflict. Well, listen, we've covered a lot of things. What's something that we didn't talk about that you'd like to? Um, so, well, here's the thing with the film. So we put the film into film festivals and whatever else and one best film in LA. I didn't expect any of that. So by the way, I mean, I was just thinking, okay, in the next step, you're supposed to do the film festival circuit, you know, cause I'm, I'm not universal studios. It's not going, you know, film festivals, LA and Istanbul and Rome and, and everywhere. And every film festival we got into, we won best film, every single one. How so, many, how many is that? So it's over 10. And I honestly, I stopped, I turned off the, I turned off the notifications on my email because I didn't have time. So I was like, there's, that's enough. That's the thing that's enough. And then I, so I unsubscribed to all the things so that I just wouldn't get all these flood of emails. So I have no idea, but at least like 10, at least 10 to 12, but like LA, London, Istanbul, Rome. And I was, I was blown away that the story of this young man who overcame so much adversity and did something historical mattered to people that don't share his faith. Because when you think of Mormon church, I feel like it's like if you're not, because it's not the Mormon church, it's the Church of Jesus Christ of the Saints, but those who share that faith, the rest of the world, like my wife, who's not a member of the church, like, yeah, that's for you. Like, cool, because it's the church. And to see that this story, even though it has that faith attached to it, it still transcended into pop and American culture. And that's when I realized, oh my, not only does the world need needs this, need this the, our faith needs it. It's a bridge. It's because we're integrated with American culture. So one best film and all that. And I just knew, although that's it, I'm going to be rich. I, I knew it. I'm like, this is it. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Yeah. I've spent all my time in music, film. Thank you. You know, and 
And so that was going to be it. And I was going to take pictures by the monuments with the cast and crew, like, hey, you know. And then I went to Utah to do that, to celebrate. And I was like, where are the monuments? And there was no monuments. I was like, wait, there's no monuments of any of those enslaved men. And, but there's, mo there's monuments everywhere. And that's when the whole, everything changed. So that's when I switched it to my nonprofit and all of the money and funds went to building a monument to honor enslaved pioneers of that pioneer trek. And so July 22nd, oh, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's so exciting. So July 22nd is when that dedication is going to be of this year. 2022. You know, mm -hmm, 2022. At, this is the place Heritage Park. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, hey, that's great. Oh my, it's going to be incredible. And people can still donate towards the monument to make it even better. If you go to greenflakemovie.com, donate and let's make it even better. But I haven't seen a penny, but he'll take care of me. I know he will <laughs> on the next project. I love it, man. Hey, congrats on all success. Congrats on pushing ahead on all this. And thanks for making time to do the interview. Loved it. Thank you. Okay. Bye everyone.